Monk Podcast. Hello. This week we've got uh, Peter Jesperson from Twin Tone. He was also famously the manager of The Replacements and has touched a whole lot of music in his his long career. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, post, post-replacements he was heavily involved with a few labels, most notably probably New West, but before that he had his own imprint called Medium Cool. Um, he's just been a lifelong mover and shaker in the in the music world and uh, a music appreciator. Uh, and as we discussed in the in the interview, you know, a lot of people in that scene in Minneapolis where he was uh, kind of cutting his teeth, um, you know, they, a lot of people were exposed to to great music through. Uh, Peter and and Orfolk Jokopus, which is this uh, really legendary record store and kind of music hub. Um, but yeah, Peter has just been involved with so much great music. Uh, and like Eddie and I have been talking, uh, we think he's a huge part of uh, the success of of the replacements. And that you know, obviously the replacements were writing these incredible songs, but uh, they weren't exactly the most uh, industry-friendly band and how they approach things. They were pretty known for rebelling against the things that uh, most people would feel are a part of kind of trying to, to gain entry into the, you know, the world of being, you know, label interests and whatever else. You know, oftentimes labels would come to a, label reps would come to a show and they'd purposely sabotage the show, um, meaning that the band would. Uh, and, you know, having someone like Peter there um, who's a little more level-headed and kind of, you know, shepherded through those crazier times um you know not to discredit the the replacements themselves but uh because obviously you know they're incredible in their own right but peter whether it be through the replacements or uh you know he mentions vic chestnut and several other artists that he was involved with you know he's just he's always managed to have a finger on the pulse and uh he has just great taste and is really inclined to try to to share new music with with the listeners and, and, and uh, get make lifelong fans out of people. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I wonder how how uh, how easily we would have found some of these bands without somebody like Peter Jesperson involved. So uh, it was really great to talk with him today. Me, me and Peter touched base a while back, um, you know, for something unrelated to the podcast and kind of established a little bit of a rapport. And I could just tell he was just a incredibly kind guy and, you know, both myself and Eddie are huge replacements fans and fans of a lot of the other things that Peter has been involved with. So uh, it was just natural to reach out to him for the show and see if he wanted to chat. We had a, a really nice long chat, um, and I think you know I think we were able to touch on some stuff that I hadn't heard Peter talk about in the past. So um, yeah, and uh, and now we have a we have a fancy new headphone splitter. So so Eddie was able to listen in as well. Yeah, it was great. I I loved listening to the conversation. Uh, he's such an interesting guy. He has such a encyclopedic knowledge of everything that's gone on. Um, it's kind of crazy him remembering, you know, where people were from, uh, you know, what bands played, what venues, uh, you know, first and stuff like that. It was really impressive. Yeah, I mean, you got to think, you know, the beginning of of a Twin Tone you know that the label that he's uh you know associated with uh, the first label he was you know i mean that was that was you know the 
later 70s, you know, and I mean, he has, like you said, encyclopedic knowledge of that, of that era, um, and, you know, he, he admits to some gaps in his memory, but, I mean, you know, you, without him saying that, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have put that voodoo on him, I mean, it, it felt like he, it felt like he really knew, like, he was just a great, uh, historian as well as a, an appreciator, and, uh, but most importantly, he's just been a, um, like I said, a mover and shaker, like, he's, he's been trying to, to push bands forward and and uh, you know just be like he's just a different voice to have in the mix as far as uh, as, as the music industry is concerned a little more of a salt of the earth kind hearted hundred uh, percent not motivated by greed like like so many people in the industry happen to be unfortunately he he's kind of the opposite of what you what your prototypical, you know, seventies A and R guy is. Absolutely. Like he, he really was, he talks about being a DJ and how invested in the backgrounds of these bands that he was dealing with. Um, and just kind of like being, being a, a, a personal kind of stand in and uh, champion of those bands. Um, and the music industry, which could, can be pretty brutal, Especially yeah. when you hear some of you know what was going on with his little labels, you know at that at the time, um, he he managed to be a musician first uh, record label guy, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, and, and you know most importantly, he just seems you know gracious with his time and and willing to chat with us and uh, you know about you know both before and during this interview. All of my interactions with him have kind of been that way. Um, yeah, you know, he's just to have accomplished so much. He's he's remained extremely humble. So it was great talking to him. Um, yeah, and you know this time we've reached out to a lot of, uh, you know, the replacements have this huge fan base and the people who do love them really nerd out on it, myself included. Um, so no shame. But uh, you know we reached out to a few fans, you know, through some some avenues online and got a lot of feedback and we we're able to. You know, include a lot of their uh, requests for talking points in this interview, which was really cool. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll we'll try to do some more of that in the future. We love having uh, you know outside input on what would be interesting to chat with these people about. And uh, thanks so much for uh, Peter for coming onto the show, and thanks to all of you guys for listening. Uh, yeah, we'll just let you get to it. Thanks so much. Yeah, and if y'all like it, uh, don't forget to subscribe. We're on a lot of platforms now. We're on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher. You can listen to it on our website, comfortmonk.com. Um, yeah, just be sure to subscribe if you want to keep hearing it. And uh, leave a review if you have an extra few minutes and have something to say. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, you know, Eddie and myself, we have, a, we have a lot of things in the works for this podcast. And we, we plan to keep churning them out and hopefully help some of the downtime you guys have at home pass a little quicker just to have a little bit of, uh, you know, just something worth worth passing the time with. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to, to, you know, to have us along with you in these times. Uh, but, you know, uh, you know, that rating, reviewing, subscribing, it just goes a long way as far as pushing this project forward. And, you know, we're moving forward regardless, but, you know, we'd, we'd appreciate it. And, you know, that is a, a pretty quick and painless way to support us so if you feel inclined please do um but yeah thanks so much guys we're gonna we're gonna jump to it we'll talk to you next time
I, I guess I had some sort of, um, dare I say, revelations uh, early on. And and so really from the age of, uh, I don't know, four or five or six, I think music, you know, really just kind of dominated my life. And and um, I was born in 54 uh, and, and I don't know that I heard it right when it came out. But the first song that I really remember clearly hearing and having that visceral sort of response to was uh, All I Have to Do is Dream by the Everly Brothers, um, which is interesting because I know you sent me some music a while back and had uh done you know the everly's uh oh yeah man i mean that's just that speaks yeah. to me as well man that's just really really classic classic music yeah so you know i mean and it's and 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 also i think that you know there was a it's it sort of if that's the first song that that enters your psyche um it's a pretty high bar and you know so i guess i give that song and those guys you know an awful lot of credit for you know, whatever it is that I got to do in, you know, my life and my career. So, um, so, you know, the, if, if, if I heard it when it was new, I guess I would have been four, it came out in 58. Um, but you know, there were other really, there were like these things, uh, that just really jumped out at me, like Hound Dog for some reason of all the Elvis songs, for some reason, Hound Dog was one that just really knocked my socks off. And then there would be odd things like, that maybe don't get talked about so much, uh, but like around that same time, uh, uh, Tom Dooley by the Kingston Trio was just a, had a huge effect on me. I remember um, going to my dad's office with him on Saturdays when he'd work weekends and he had a, a friend in the office who uh, used to give me a, I forget if it was a nickel or a quarter to sing Tom Dooley for him because I knew all the words, you know, so I couldn't have been more than, you know, whatever it was, four, five, six years old, you know, so that was another one. And, and, and there again, you know, you're, um, like I was just listening to your interview with Tommy Stinson or the comfort monk interview with Tommy. And, oh. and he was saying, talking about, uh, you know, uh, Dylan's writing and, and Chilton's writing and stuff and the storytelling. And I think certainly the Kingston trio, you know, uh, Tom Dooley is, there was such a story there. I mean, it was really striking, uh, to me as a little kid. And so, you know, that's kind of the beginning. I, I won't, ramble on and on or I'll try not to anyway but um but so so I I got you know lit up pretty quick um and uh you know as a as a young kid and then I also had an older brother who was six years older than me who uh got really into the folk uh music of the late 50s and early 60s so I heard all the stuff he was listening to like the Kingston Trio uh or the Chad Mitchell Trio or um, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and and then, of course, Dylan. Um, uh, so, you know, that was kind of really where, you know, the uh, stuff I heard early on. And then, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a, a product of, uh, of the British invasion, really, in, in uh, most respects. I mean, once the Beatles hit, it was all over for me. I mean, I was pretty sure I was probably, you know, the Beatles hit when I was eight. So, I mean, I don't know that I, you know, made a career choice at that point, but I was pretty sure music was going to be a part of my life uh, in a big way. And and once the Beatles hit, it was like I, I was incapable of doing anything else. So that that was really the big bang for me. Nice. Um, you, you mentioned that you have a uh, an older brother. What what's the age difference there between you and that six, brother? Six years. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's born in. Yeah. I feel like uh, you know, it's come up a few times in in chatting with people for this that. Uh, you know, just whatever older sibling was involved that turned them on at an early age to 
music that they might not have otherwise been exposed to, at least not quite yet. So it's really interesting to hear that you kind of had that too. I know uh, uh, I was listening to something where I heard, you know, that one of Paul Westerberg's older siblings, uh, you know, was also a musician and it was kind of a similar, like, picking from each other's stash kind of thing uh, as far as musically. Um, so it's, it's, it's great to see how, how that affects your kind of musical story, your story. I mean, I think it just kind of gets it in there a little bit earlier when you got a, an older sibling kind of giving you easy access to it, you know? True. And I think, you know, in both in Paul's case and mine, you know, our older siblings were, you know, into a rootsier kind of music. Um, um, and uh, Paul's brother was kind of more of a blues guy and my brother was more of a folk bluegrass guy. And, um, you know, so interesting that, you know, we were, you know, pretty rock, you know, pretty much rock kids. And, and, um, and my brother didn't really like rock very much. Um, so, uh, yeah, most people you know, rebel he, against their, their dads, not their brothers, you know? Yeah. Right. Well, I wasn't really rebelling, <laughs> I but know, I mean, I remember kidding. him. Yeah, no, no. I know what you're saying though. I mean, my, and funny also my parent, neither of my parents were musical at all. So they had two kids that were real music obsessives. My brother, is is the leader of the oldest longest running bluegrass band in the state of minnesota so he's been playing in this band since 1967 so wow. it's you know it's he's as nutty about music as i am and so it's it's an interesting thing and you know we've always gotten along and i always looked up to him so i never you know when he when he you know you know sneered at the beatles in the early days i just said you know you know i, I ignored him and he eventually came around to recognizing you know that they were you know that they were great I know you mentioned that your brother has been playing music for a long time. Did you ever actually uh, like pick up an instrument, or were you kind of more so an appreciator than a than a player? More an appreciator, I guess. I mean, I think that you know, really, this probably sounds like a cop out, but I, I I've always felt uh, that for some reason music hit me so hard, so fast that I was intimidated by the idea of me playing an instrument and trying to you know, do anything that was, you know, approaching as good as what I was hearing on the radio or on records of the day. Um, I did take drum lessons, um, for a short time. Um, uh, but yeah, it, it just never stuck. And, and so, you know, I, I guess my line has always been, I don't play an instrument, but I play a, I play a wicked turntable. That was my line. But, uh, well, I mean, that's, that's valid, you know, I mean, I, th- I think it's kind of impressive that, you know, you you aren't uh, like you said yourself. You ha- you haven't really leaned into trying to hone your chops as a player, but yet I I I would you know go so far as to say that you've influenced just as many players as you know you know the great players of the world have. You know, I mean, in the sense that so many people have uh, been inspired by what you helped foster and uh, thrive as far as the artistic community in the Minneapolis scene uh, that. That it's it's impressive the reach that that you've had as more of a mover and shaker rather than a an, a performer yourself. Um, last night I just got the bug, you know, uh, you know, as I'm sure you're fully aware. There's the replacements fandom is is very real. So I was like, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna reach out to you know a couple forums online just to kind of get a feel of like if there's anything in particular people want me to say while I was chatting with you today. So I reached out, and one of the ones that really stuck out to me was this this, this guy posted, uh, you know, which is kind of what I was hoping we would say, something that was a little more, um, I guess, a little more focused on your your career rather than, uh, you know, 
specifically the bands that you've been associated with. And uh, I guess this 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 guy must be a, a Minneapolis local, but he he just commented and asked me, please thank him on behalf of the many nameless high school dudes who hung out at Orfolk while he was working the counter to get his music listening advice and inspiration. If Minneapolis had an award for lifetime contributions to culture through the performing arts, he would be among its recipients. And I just thought that was super charming and super accurate and kind of wanted to relay that to you. Beautiful. Thank you very much. That's lovely. I'm, that's, 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 that's really something. Thanks. But yeah, I mean, and, and that, that reach that you've had within that specific role that you've played in whatever, you know, whatever musically you're tapping into at the time, whether it be Twin Tone or New West or, you know, managing uh, the replacements, uh, you know, you've always had a really, uh, what's the right word, a very generous approach to it. It seems like your goal is always to turn somebody on to something that they're going to love for a lifetime, which is really something that uh, I appreciate, you know. I mean, it, that's why we all go to the record shops that we go to to, to kind of get that that connection with another music appreciator. Um, well, cool. That's, a, you know, that's the trick, isn't it? I mean, you know, to find, you know, that's what, you know, we tried to do at Twin Tone and, and, and then later at New West, you know, find stuff that, um, you know, make records with people that you're still going to want to listen to in 50 years. You know, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, f- flavor of the moment kind of stuff that sounded good to me that it, I found, you know, didn't, you know, hold its allure, uh, you know, over years. And, and so that's the kind of thing that, um, hopefully I tried to fine tune is, is recognizing something that was, uh, you know, recognizing, you know, recognizing an artist that had a deep well to draw from, you know, was, uh, you know, was what I, I tried to figure out and, and, you know, I can't really tell you how, but, uh, you know, it's, I guess it's instinct or whatever. That's what you try to, um, you know, try to, uh, you know, develop in, in the kind of work I did and, and do. Well, do you remember kind of when you, when you switched a bit more from, uh, from, you know, appreciating the records in your bedroom and, and, you know, turning your friends on to stuff to when you decide, when you decided to kind of put that, knowledge that wealth of knowledge into action when you you know what was the first step towards kind of trying to narrow your focus with with that appreciation well i think pretty early on i mean i i i mean you know one of the things is i'm not really good at anything else you know so i i'm kind of stuck with the music thing whether you know for better or for worse um so you know pretty early on i think it occurred to me I think maybe the little, um, you know, uh, light bulb went off over my head when, you know, I fell in love with the song and I wanted to play it for somebody else um, or songs, more than one song. And I remember sort of having the sense that you had to set up the listening experience a little bit and, and the order of the songs that you played, you know, for people made a difference in how they reacted. So it was almost like, you know, I don't want to say tricking somebody into liking something, but you tried to set them up to, um, you know, uh, sort of be receiving, um, you know, have their antenna up or whatever. So I guess that was the moment where I suddenly went, Hey, if I played this song first and then this one, and then this one, it would just knock their socks off. And so that was maybe where I first started thinking if I'm going to do, 
this for a living, maybe being a disc jockey is my calling. And so that's really what I thought I was going to do for a long, long time. Um, probably from, I would say, elementary school through, um, you know, when I actually got out of high school and I went to a vocational school and studied broadcasting and radio electronics and, and just the nuts and bolts of, you know, how to work in radio besides just playing records and talking to people. You know, uh, when I was coming up, there was a, uh, you know, there was a, you know, particular thing that you could do in radio to give yourself an edge. And that was to get a, a radio telephone operator's license, which sounds so antiquated now. But um, if you had the, you know, that license, it allowed you to take transmitter readings. And so that meant I could work overnight shifts at radio stations and they wouldn't have to have a second person on duty. I could be doing you know, you know, playing the music and making the announcements and, you know, doing the news and weather, but I could also be taking meter readings. And so that gave me an advantage. And that's what I did. And, you know, I don't have a particularly strong math brain, but I just worked my ass off on the radio electronic side and studied as hard as I could. And when I took the test, uh, I remember thinking uh, it's a 50-50 shot, whether I pass that sucker or not. And I remember waiting, you know, for the mail to arrive every day at my parents' house, you know, when I thought that license, you know, either I'd be getting my license in the mail or I'd be getting a notice saying I didn't pass. And when I got my license, I just hooted, jumped for joy. And, and that allowed me to get a job at a radio station. So, you know, that's that's, I guess, maybe more detailed than you need, but th that's really how it started for me. And then, you know, quickly I found out that radio was just way too restrictive. Um, and, you know, I was working with people who, you know, you know, could have been shoe salesmen or, or, you know, uh, you know, done, you know, something else and, and, uh, and, and didn't have a, a background or a, a passion for music. And, you know, so that kind of turned me off to, you know, the people who ran radio. I mean, I guess I've always had an authority figure, you know, problem, but, uh, in that case it was like, man, these people don't know anything about music. How come they're running this radio station? You know, so I did it for a year and a half and then I got out Gotcha, man. And it seemed like that was kind of, from there, from what I've gathered, it seems like you pretty much, you were kind of booking, helping places book, and then people were kind of bringing their tapes to you to try to get gigs, which, you know, of course led to Paul bringing you some tapes, uh, or a, a single tape, I guess. Um, to, which well, that was all Orfolk, you know, that was really just, I mean, I wasn't the only one. Everybody at Orfolk had, or not everybody, but I mean, there were like basically a core of um, you know, any given time, four of us who worked there and we were really, you know, um, I, I mean, and I don't want this to sound snotty or anything, but I mean, we were experts in our field. I mean, we really knew what we were talking about. We lived and breathed it. And so, you know, it, it's like when I was listening to the radio as a younger kid, you know, I had the sense, I, I had this picture in my mind that there was this guy sitting in this room with records stacked floor to ceiling and, you know, he's frantically listening to everything that came in the mail, trying to pick the best songs to play for me and my friends. And um, and so that was, uh, you know, that that that, you know, to me, that was a that was noble work. And um, and and so, you know, we, you know, uh, you know, we read everything we could get our hands on about, you know, the musicians we loved and, and you know, got as many records as we could afford and listen to the records that we couldn't afford that our friends had and. You know, so we just built up a, a, a grasp of, of um, 
you know, the, you know, what was going on in rock and roll at the time and, and what had preceded, you know, our era as well, because, you know, obviously there was so much that came before that was so great and the building blocks and all that. So, you know, we really, I mean, Orfolk was, you know, I mean, it sounds cliched to say it, and there are a lot of record stores like this and a lot of other places like this, you know, gathering places where people exchange information and, and, um, ideas and whatnot but orfolk was really so much more than a record store i mean it was a clubhouse and you know you know people came in you know like the gentleman that you quoted about you know uh you know thanking us for you know working the counter at orfolk well it worked the other way too the people that came into orfolk you know taught us a whole lot too so you know we were you know somebody come in and ask for something we didn't know about and we felt like it was our job to you know help them find it whether we thought it was a good record or not and often it was a it was a good record and then they turned us on to something that you know we you know grew to love so you know anyway that's amazing man and one thing i kind of this is a a bit off topic but i figured while we're while we're talking about you know record stores being turned on to music um uh well, yesterday, actually, on on this same very porch, uh, we uh, we we spoke to uh, Eddie Shaw, who is a member of this band that put out a record called Black Monk Time in the '66. They're a band called the Monks. Um, oh yeah, sure. So yeah, uh, you know, I was just talking uh, my kind of my co-pilot here with this Comfort Monk podcast is is my my friend Eddie Newman, and we were just talking about how like the Monks are kind of a perfect band. For they're like a record collector's band, you know? Um, so I was curious, yeah, like, you know, it just made me think, uh, you know, that's probably an example of something that, you know, would have been hard to get your hands on back then. But, uh, you know, having somebody like you or whoever else was working the counter at, at the shop, you know, you might have turned somebody on to that, and, you know, or whatever it may have been, you know? Um, and that's just a, you know, that's a public service that, like you said, it's mutually beneficial. They're turning you guys on to stuff too, but... It, it's it's cool to see how that has played such a heavy role in in the Minneapolis scene, um, and you know it's you know, which is a kind of a perfect segue into what I was thinking about next was kind of those early twin tone years. You know, I mean, I'm I, my you know I I know a bit of the twin tone history pre replacements, but I kind of wanted to to you know touch base with you and kind of hear what where twin tone was at when the replacements came on, uh, you know, what those early years were like and how the, you know, the, that first run of records from the replacements, how that changed the twin tone world as a whole, you know? Well, you know, twin tone really sprung out of, um, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, the scene was exploding and we've joked about it. There was two, two other partners in twin tone, myself, Charlie Hallman and Paul Stark. And, we used to, you know, uh, sort of joke that we didn't really decide to uh, start a record label. We were forced into existence by the sheer number of great bands in, you know, the Twin Cities of Minneapolis, St. Paul. And, um, you know, so, you know, the scene's exploding and the, you know, King of the Hill at the time was the Suicide Commandos and and actually Chris Osgood, the main or the, you know, sort of quasi leader of the Commandos uh, was uh, the one who first started talking about forming a record label with Paul Stark and Charlie Hallman. And, and as that, the, the, their very early stage discussions were happening, uh, you know, the commandos were working hard and touring hard and playing hard and they got a record deal with a polygram 
Um, and you probably know this, uh, or you may know this, but anyway, they get, they signed to a, an imprint called blank records in 1977, um, which was an experiment that the powers that be at polygram were doing, um, with a guy by the name of Cliff Bernstein, who was just a, you know, a music guy, manager, person, A&R person, whatever. And they gave him the, the uh enough rope to um you know try this um new wave label as they called it back in the day and he signed two bands uh the suicide commandos and pair ubu and um so that took chris osgood in a different direction he didn't feel he could really be involved in uh you know the day-to-day setting up of a record label and he said but there's this guy peter who works at orfolk that you might think about you know talking to instead so uh, you know, actually Chris and Paul and Charlie and I, the four of us got together. Chris introduced me to them and kind of passed the baton, so to speak. And of course I was immediately, I just said, hell yeah, I'd love to get involved in, um, doing a record label. And, you know, by that time, this is 77, I'd been at Orfolk for four years by then. And we'd seen, you know, a lot of the independent labels start to spring up in America. And that also led us to, you know, dealing with um, smaller distributors that carried odder, uh, less mainstream types of music. And uh, so we were able to bring a lot of things in from outside of the country, especially the UK. And so we were really set up at that time for, you know, what happened, the, the, you know, quote unquote punk rock explosion. And, um, um, so, uh, anyway, we, um, so we, we basically said, let's, you know, try to put together, uh, a, a list of groups that we think would be a good way to launch the label. Um, and it, this happened to coincide with the opening of a club in Minneapolis called the Longhorn. The Longhorn actually opened in June of 77 and our first, uh, Twin tone discussions were probably October of '77, if that gives you an idea of the wow. timeline there. And um, so, um, by that time, you know, the Longhorn was really just, um, uh, you know, another place like Orfolk, um, where you could, you know, hear this, you know, music that was uh, uh, not mainstream and that was uh, also local bands playing original music and not just doing covers, which was kind of what was going on in most of the, you know, music venues around town at the time. And, um, so the Longhorn became a real hang and, and, uh, you know, they, uh, that was so million angles to this. So I'm sorry if I'm rambling, but, uh, it was about that same time that, um, you know, disco had come in in the early, uh, you know, early seventies and, and um, by the time uh, the Longhorn came along, uh, they had started to use, uh, uh, you know, obviously there were all these clubs with DJs playing disco music. Well, that started to spread into the rock clubs, uh, especially in New York. Um, and uh, there was a, a, a company called Rockpool, which was really important back in the day. And they were kind of the clearinghouse. They would get lots of records from these small independent American labels and uh, from the overseas labels, and they would sort of uh, curate 
And then they had a subscription service where you could sign up and, and, you know, you could be in different parts of the country and you'd get rock pools recommendations for the month or whatever it was. And so we got hooked up with rock pool there at the Longhorn. And so we were hearing all these other bands and, 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 and seeing records coming out on these, you know, non-major labels. And it was very exciting time. So, uh, really, we, as as we've said many times, uh, the early days of Twin Tone was really just sort of picking the best bands we saw play at the Longhorn. I mean, that was as simple as that. And um, and also prior to the Longhorn, I had run into a local musician by the name of Kurt Almstead, uh, played under the name Thumbs Up when I first met him. He had a band called Thumbs Up, and. Uh, that was the first time that I'd heard something local that I thought was uh, of the same level of quality of, of some of the things that I was getting on record. So that was a real uh, another sort of revelation for me to, to hear Kurt. Um, and, and Kurt's thing was a little bit of a mix of American rhythm and blues, like, say, Wilson Pickett you know, meets the British invasion. That's where Curtis A. lived in that world and that, and that kind of music style. And it was a unique thing, you know, the putting together of those two things. So, you know, he had an, a pretty original sound and a real, he was a screamer. He could really sing well, but he could also really scream well. And uh, so for me, uh, when they said, uh, Paul and Charlie and Chris were saying, you know, they wanted to start a record label and would I want to be involved? I was like, yeah. And the first guy we got to talk to is Kurt Olmsted. And they all agreed, of course. Everybody knew Kurt was the one of the main things. You know, the Suicide Commandos, uh, Kurt's band Thumbs Up, and another group called Flamingo were really the three big bands at this time in 1977. And so that's really where we started. I mean, was, uh, you know, basically we couldn't have the commandos. They went to Polygram. Uh, we did get Kurt and his band Thumbs Up. Uh, actually, when we started recording uh, their first record for Twin Tone, they were called Thumbs Up. By the time the record was done, he changed the name to Spooks. But um, anyway, and uh, Spooks, of course, featured Bob Dunlap on lead guitar, and he later became Slim Dunlap in the replacements, just for a little color there, background. Uh, and we tried to get Flamingo, but Flamingo were kind of on their own path and decided they wanted to, um, you know, sort of, um, you know, uh, do their own thing rather than joining up with Twin Tone. So uh, we ended up going with another band called Fingerprints, who were uh, some guys I'd known from high school, uh, who also had a bunch of recording gear uh, and had started a little recording studio that they called Blackberry Way. Um, and the third act that we decided to go with for the initial Twin Tone launch was a, a group of young upstarts called The Suburbs. And so that was really where we began, was with these three bands. They were quite different uh, stylistically, which I thought was a good thing, and um, or we all thought was a good thing. And, uh, and so we put out three seven-inch EPs in the spring of 1978, um, and uh, we did beautiful picture sleeves, and we pressed them up on red vinyl, and we were off to the races. That's awesome. Man. So that was that was really the beginning. And, and 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 you know when you're talking about how what this what it was like as the replacements came in, I mean we we did those records. We had some other things like uh, uh, we thought we were going to do another set of EPs after those first three came out, and then as we started talking about it and what bands they would be we realized that there were just too many and we thought maybe we should do a compilation album 
rather than a, a series of EPs. And then once we got into that, we thought there's too many for a, a single album. Let's do a double album. So we made an album called Big Hits of Mid-America, Volume 3, uh, which came out in uh, 1979. And, um, and uh, so that's kind of where things were at um, uh, right prior to the replacements. Uh, I got the first cassette from Paul and I guess it would have been, excuse me, April or May of 1980. So uh, that was kind of what the uh, twin tone scene was like as they uh, emerged. So, so when you, uh, you know, when you took on the replacements, I know, you know, there was, it was a bit of a process after that. It wasn't, you know, like you got the tape and then it was immediately, uh, the band was, you know, immediately hitting the road. Um, But I don't think it was too long after you received that tape that it seemed like the momentum started to really pick up. And did you find yourself, you know, was there an adjustment period to having a you know a bit more of a hands-on approach with this band while still trying to uh, maintain all of your responsibilities within Twin Tone? I know that at Twin Tone you've said that there was a lot of shared responsibilities, but um, you know, did you find yourself having to kind of rethink your approach to both sides once you had you know a, a pretty heavy involvement in one band in particular, but you still had all these lab, you know, regular label duties on your, on your plate? Well, I mean, I didn't think it was a problem. And I think for the most part, other people didn't either. I mean, with any record label, you know, you've got to have, you know, more than one group. And, and when, you know, when one group starts to, you know, react uh, you know, say at radio or at retail or something like that, you have to be ready to, you know, move on a dime, so to speak. And, and so you just try to cover all your bases. And I think that's one of the things that record labels, you know, uh, have struggled with for, you know, you know, uh, you know, uh, in, in history and, and will for eternity. I mean, it's, it's just a, I, I mean, you know, certainly, um, you know, I, I think, you know, fast forward to New West, that was one of the problems I had with New West was I thought we just put out too many records and I didn't think it was fair to the staff or the, uh, you know, the artists that we had on the label because you couldn't pay attention to everything as much as you should. So, you know, it was that matter of trying to find that sweet spot of, of uh, you know, having enough groups to keep the company active and to keep, a you know, some kind of revenue stream going and, and, uh, and, you know, trying to, you know, pay attention as, as best you could. Um, so with the replacements, I mean, you know, there were some people that got ticked off. I remember, I won't mention names, but there was one band on Twin Tone that after a few months, the replacements were really gathering a lot of steam. And uh, one of the, one of our other bands actually said to me, you know, why didn't you do for us what you did for the replacements? And it was like, I, I was just flabbergasted i was like i didn't it's not like i have some kind of magic wand i just you know uh you you know i I tried to uh you know uh help promote the things that were good about these you know all of the bands and when one you know started getting a reaction you know you kind of you know tried to follow that as best you could i mean so you know there there were i think um Sometimes the people were pissed off that the replacements were getting so much attention and maybe to some degree uh, they deserve to be pissed off. But I think for the most part, you know, you know, my partners understood that I had to there was a lot of work to do with the replacements. They were very busy. And the other thing about them was, you know, when 
that I think is a really interesting part of it, and it's been talked about some in in the press and and whatnot over the years. But I, I think it's important to recognize that when they came along, they had just a handful of songs, um, and some of them were really basic and really kind of dumb, um, you know, uh, but 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 charming in their own way. And but amongst those were songs like "Raised in the City," which I thought was an outstanding song, or even something like "Shut Up." Was this is a song that needed to be written? Um, you know, they had a lot of those. But but the thing was, once you know, Paul was given a platform from which to work. When somebody came along and said, "Hey, we can get you gigs in actual rock clubs rather than playing, you know, beer parties in somebody's basement in the suburbs." Um, you know, when we said we can help you get, you know, gigs in, in, in uh, rock clubs and, and we can actually talk about a record deal and help you put out records. I mean, it was sudden, <clears throat> suddenly the floodgates opened and you couldn't, you know, it was like you turned down the, you know, the, you know, the faucet and, uh, and you couldn't stop it. I mean, he started writing songs, you know, like a madman. And um, so... You know, it was all he needed was, you know, was the opportunity. And then he just exploded. So, you know, I think that that was another thing that, you know, we just kind of, um, like I said, you know, we gave him gave him the vehicle, you know, uh, you know, with which to, you know, deliver his art, I guess. Absolutely, man. I mean, it, it all makes sense. And I mean, I think you've got a point that, you know, of course, there's going to be some pushback just because you know the 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 progression of each band on the label no matter how much support they're receiving from the label it's going to be different for each band you know uh that that yeah. it's not you know and only so much of that really can you guys influence you, you I think you like you said you did everything you can to get to to get that attention for each band but you know yeah, it's, it's not the like stars never a time. only align when they align you know you can only force them to to do so much you know yeah, it's like, I, you know, there was never a time that I can think of, you know, a Twin Tone or New West where we said, hey, we've got two bands that are really happening right now, but we've only got enough money to promote one. Which one should we pick? I mean, that never happens. You know, it's just, you know, you just have to go with, uh, you know, do your best for everybody. And, and you know, um, you know, sometimes when, uh, you know, the say the, the, the team at, at Twin Tone, Paul and Charlie and I are working really hard on the replacements, well, you know, one of these other bands that weren't getting the same amount of attention could have taken that, you know, to say, well, you know what, then we've got to jump in here and do a little bit more for ourselves to bring ourselves up to the level where, you know, the people at the label can give us a little more attention. Right. So, you I know, mean, if anything, it's motivation, right? You get you want should, like like you're saying, the faucet was on for Paul. Right. So all of these songs are coming out at the very least. I would like to think that some of those other bands who were <clears throat> maybe not seeing the most or, you know, the, the climb happen quite as quickly as the replacements you'd like to think that hopefully a few of them were inspired well you know shit we need to start writing more songs or we need to gig more or whatever it needs to be um uh you know because at the end of the day uh it's a it's a strange person or just a strange context i think it was like an instagram post that i saw that that will smith posted where he said you know trying to put out somebody else's light or fire is never going to make your light shine brighter but it's easy to think that you know whenever you see other people succeeding oh it's this that or the other is why they're why they're climbing and and not and i'm not or whatever or just to you know to you know jealousy whatever it may be um 
But really, the best case scenario when you see others thriving, like, or, you know, that momentum building up is to be like, let it be a, let it motivate you to put in more effort in whatever aspects you can as far as to your uh, creative outlet, you know, because that's the aspects you have control over. You, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that are just going to happen how they happen, but you're the, the only thing you can 100% uh, control is the amount of effort and uh, just, you know, creative energy you're putting towards the project. So I'm, I'm hoping well, that, that that translated for a few of the few of those bands that might have been initially frustrated to see one band climbing, you know, so quickly. Yeah, I think it did. And I think motivation is the key word here. And, and, uh, and also, you know, it's, it's, you know, as, as we have said for years, uh, you know, it's not rocket science, you know, this, the record business isn't rocket science. It's, it's, a, you know, it's really a, a two things. It's, it's hard work and luck. And, you know, as you say, one thing you can control and the other thing you can't, you just have to try to get yourself in a position to receive the luck if it comes your way. And, and so, you know, that's the thing. I mean, it's really, really hard work to do this. And, and, and it's also, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I, 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 I often think, you know, when people say they want to get into the music business, whether it's an artist or a, a person who wants to do A&R or whatever, I, I, I sort of jokingly say, you know, you could, you could think about a career that won't break your heart. You know, right. just 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 by the way. And and, and also, you know, if you're going to think about doing this, you know, you have to embrace the fact that 99 percent of the musicians in the world can't afford, you know, can't make a living from playing music. So, you know, is this something you really want to do? You know, and I think it's not you know, it's not for the faint of heart. It's got to be, you know, you got to be almost, um, you, know, you know, you just got to be, you know, kind of um, maybe. uh uh, unbalanced to want to do it in a way. Uh, but you know, that's, that's what separates the, the people that, you know, uh, are doing it casually from the people that just can't do anything else. So, right. um, and I think that, uh, th- you know, the other thing about the replacement specifically and that people forget about is that, you know, passion doesn't equal talent. There's a lot of people out there that are really passionate about what they want to do and passionate about the music they're making. But, you know, the thing, uh, you know, I remember specifically another band that was in Minneapolis around the same time as the replacements were coming up saying something to me uh, like, you know, oh, you know, geez, Peter, what are you thinking here? This is a 12 year old bass player. This is really going to go far. And I and all I could think of was, have you listened to the songs? I mean, you know, it was I just thought these songs are so cool. What yeah, this guy, you know, what these, age he is. If he, if yeah, he, you know, I mean, it's like Jesus Christ, and and plus, you know, they were just so much fun. I mean, those those the first. I mean, the first time I saw them, it was it was you know it was uh, you know everything I hoped it would be, and and then some. I mean, it was just crazy how cool they were. I, I was, you know, and there was you know five or six of my best music buddies that were there at that first gig they did at the Longhorn in July of 80. And you just, you know, I mean, I could have died happy right then. It was so fucking fantastic. Yeah. And I think that's probably, that speaks a lot to why you've been able to, you know, to stay at it for as long as you have, you know, because uh, I mean, I remember, you know, as, as young as uh, I think maybe fourth or fifth grade, my school had like a writing competition and uh, whoever won got to go meet the, the governor at his at the governor's mansion, which is a strange reward for to offer a fourth grader. But I think yeah. I I felt really motivated just because I at that point in time I don't think I had quite leaned into playing music as much as appreciating it. And one of the things I appreciated the most about music was the lyrical content. 
So I was really yeah. inspired by all of these writers. And I remember almost like having like a pep talk with myself. And, you know, I mean, I might be fudging the numbers a little bit, but it, it seemed pre-middle school um, where I was like, you know what, like you can pursue a, a life of trying to, you know, devote a lot of time and energy to and to art, but just accept now that, you know, it's not something that you can pursue with an end goal of like monetary success. You know, like I, I just remember being so young and being like, as long as I'm okay with not making any money at this for the rest of my life, I can be happy with it. You know, I think is kind of what you're saying as well is that like, you know, obviously the goal is to get to a place where you're, you're able to be comfortable you know, and I think a lot of people dream to just be able to quit their day job and just, you know, lean into whatever they're pursuing, music or otherwise. Um, but, and, you know, part of that that I'm, you know, I'm curious about is, you know, before, you know, before the replacements hit this stride where, you know, they're signing with Sire, they're, they're doing SNL and, and all of this, you know, those early years, you know, I guess around the Sorry Ma era, were you guys, like, getting them on the road a pretty good bit around the Sorry Ma era, or was it later in the career when they really were hitting the road? Well, I mean, I think it was a pretty natural development. Um, you know, when they started, of course, you know, uh, you know, Tommy was still in school, um, and I think maybe Chris had dropped out by then, uh, and Paul probably too, and, and but I mean, I think, yeah, the other guys had dropped out, so... Um, you know, there was that, you know, also the fact that Tommy was so young, you know, probably, you know, we didn't think about, you know, touring coast to coast immediately. Um, and also, you know, they, you know, when they came along, I mean, I really thought, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, 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 I thought it was clear to me that this was an extremely talented group. Um, but, you know, it takes a while to get that in motion. And, um, so, you know, I think that maybe the first time we went out of town for a gig was December of 1980. So, you know, if I get the tape in May of 80 and we help them get a gig at the Longhorn and we're not a hundred percent sure, but we think it was July 2nd, 1980 when they actually played there. Um, then we started, you know, doing some preliminary recording at twin tone in late July and, by the fall we were you know working on you know what became the first album um and then by december you know we took a road trip so you know we're we're thinking about you know playing elsewhere outside of minneapolis um but you know there wasn't really any call for it yet and and also you know you got to have somebody a booking agent to help get you out to these places and we didn't have that yet you know it takes you a while to you know get somebody on board to do that kind of work and you know, so I think in 81, you know, we started traveling a bit more, um, you know, by 82, Husker du took us to Chicago, for instance. Um, so, you know, it was, I, I think, a pretty natural progression. And the band, of course, was impatient in some ways. They wanted, you know, uh, you know, they they wished that they'd had a record budget where we could have just gone in for, you know, two weeks or three weeks or a month or whatever it was to make the first album and, you know, put it out a couple months later. But, you know, we had to kind of stand in line and, and you know, uh, you know, we bartered for studio time in a lot of uh, cases, Um you know, where we didn't have money, you know, Twin Tone, you know, would say, hey, uh, you know, you know, if we, 
you know, w- work with this band, um, you know, can, you know, it basically we'd strike up a deal with the recording studio and say, you know, we're, we're doing this on spec. If you'll give us, you know, uh, some of your downtime, you know, in the evenings or on weekends or, you know, in the middle of the night or whatever, you know, to use the studio, um, then we'll, you know, uh, you know, try to repay you in some other way. And so, you know, anyway, um, long story short, I think that we, um, you know, by the time, you know, late 82 came around, the band really, really wanted to get out of town. And so that's when I started trying to figure out how to, you know, get them to New York. Uh, we decided to go East first, I guess. And, um, so I started trying to, you know, knock on doors, make phone calls, whatever, and um in into early 83 and you know by this time we had sorry mon stink out uh we had hoot nanny pretty much in the can um <coughs> excuse me and um and so uh at some point you know i'm talking to people in boston and new york and philadelphia you know through friends of friends a lot of that were contacts of people that i knew through or folk you know just record distributor people saying, hey, you know, um, you should try this person at this club in this city. Um, you know, so I was, you know, just really turning over every rock I could. And uh, we had a very, very lucky thing happen where two or three people uh, happened to uh, approach a young booking agent in New York um, all about the same time or within about a week's time, he had three different people reach out to him about the replacement saying, hey, I know this guy in Minneapolis who's trying to get this band out east and they're really good and I think you should help them. And so this guy ended up after, you know, the third person told him that he should be paying attention to this band. Um, he called me up in Minneapolis and his name was Frank Riley. And Frank was a booking agent in New York, worked for a company called Singer Management, which was a, a gentleman by the name of Bob Singerman, who was, you know, kind of the owner booking agent. And um, he had a couple other guys booking for him. And Frank was one of them. <coughs> Excuse me again. And um, so he I remember I can remember it clear as day being at Orfolk answering the phone one day and. And, uh, and, and this voice saying, is Peter Jesperson there? I said, this is he. And he said, well, my name's Frank Riley and I'm with singer management in New York. And he said, indirectly, you've helped me get a lot of my bands, you know, the bands on our roster, uh, booked into Minneapolis clubs. I'd like to return the favor. Um, I hear you have a band that you're trying to get out East. And I said, well, yes, I do. And, and so we started talking and that was really where, I mean, that was, I mean, borderline miracle that that happened at that point in time Um, because the replacements weren't a band that very many people wanted to get into business with. They were very unpredictable and they were wild. And, uh, um, you know, they had a, you know, 13 by that time, a 13 year old, 14 year old bass player. And and, um, so uh, the fact that Frank Riley stuck his neck out at that time was you know borderline insanity if you ask me but um it changed everything and uh that was really when it all happened that's when you know we booked uh he helped us book the first tour it was april of 83 and we went east played new york city on i guess it was april 13th 1983 at a place called folk city that was the first gig uh in new york and um and you know we did dates in philly and dc and 
Boston, uh, Boston really took to the band right away and, and more so than, than any of the other major East coast cities. So we felt Boston was a real, um, you know, uh, a, a, a good spot for us. And, um, and so it just developed from there, but really Frank Riley at singer management started it all and, and, um, and worked with the band until after I quit working with the band. So he, he was integral to the whole growth. Well, I, you know, speaking of, of, of these touring years, um, you know, I, I, I've been trying to find any time that, you know, one of these artists that we're speaking to has made their way to our town here, which is Columbia, South Carolina. I'm kind of, I'm yeah. really curious about it, you know? So we, we spoke to, we're actually putting out an episode later this afternoon um, with Kira Rossler, who's the bass player from, or was the bass player from Black Flag. She played in Dose with, uh, you know, that project she had with Mike Watt and a bunch yep. of other, other projects. Um, and, you know, there's this great story about, I think it was 84, at the Township Auditorium here in Columbia, The Clash played. And then at a small, small club across town, the same night the Black Flag played as sort of an after party. Um, and by Columbia standards, you know, like Columbia is this great little hub, but it's often skipped. But so I'm always really excited when I hear about bands that have, that have passed through here. And, uh, you know, I know that the replacements played, I definitely know they played Charleston a few times over the years. Um, and when. Is that the milestone? Uh, actually, that's Charlotte. Um, which, Charlotte, right. which they just did a benefit for for uh, like one of those online streaming show things that that a lot of people are doing right now. Um, I haven't seen anything where the replacements ever played here, but I'm kind of curious if you have any memories of you know of times when the band was in South Carolina. Uh, well, no, I mean I traveled with them, so I I mean I was with them the first time we went through South Carolina. Or the first, you know, those first years, I I traveled with them through the spring of '86, and you know, so. Uh, but um, I don't think there was ever a gig in Columbia. In fact, I was thinking about it before you called. Uh, I think my one connection with Columbia was I, I after, but um, in, in the early '90s, I started an imprint at, at Twin Tone called Medium Cool, and. Uh, and I worked with a band called the Dashboard Saviors, and their manager was from Columbia, South Carolina. So that's really about my only big connection there. Um, I do remember have one interesting, uh, for some reason, you know how memory works. It's like I've got big black holes in my memory for various reasons: uh, 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 substance abuse and age uh, being two of them. But anyway, um, uh, one thing that I remember very clearly was being in. I believe it was South Carolina anyway, going to a convenience store uh, with Bob Stinson. And, you know, there was, I guess that the, those sto stores down there, I mean, it was, maybe it was a liquor store. Do they sell, is it one of the, Columbia, one of the places that sells beer and hard liquor in the same store? Or do you have to go to separate stores for those? Uh well back then it's hard for me to say but now it depends I think there are a few small places where you can get uh where you can get both beer and liquor but back in oh actually uh my 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 friend Eddie here is shaking his head that no that is not the case so yeah I think I think this is one of the towns where it's separate yeah I, I, so I remember it being separate and we had gone into a place I guess if I'm with Bob he wasn't much of a hard liquor drinker so we were probably going for beer. Um, but one thing that I remember was that they had a jar on the counter with individual cigarettes that you could buy for a dime. 
Wow. That yeah. weren't that weren't in boxes. And for some reason that's one of those South Carolina things that always jumps out at me. Like, what a weird thing. I never saw that anywhere else. You know, and I, I don't know that that is actually legal here, but it's something that you can find. It is a weird South Carolina thing where it is a possibility to to find a place that will kind of sneak singles to you. I think they call them loose loosies. That that's funny. <laughs> but uh uh so one thing I, w- I wanted to talk to you about a little bit is, you know, obviously I'm just as guilty as, as a lot of other people in, in bugging you a ton about, you know, your involvement with the replacements because obviously that that aspect of your career is really important to a lot of us. But, you know, you've accomplished a ton outside outside of that world too. And I, I wanted to uh, hear from you what some of your career personal career highlights or what you view as your career highlights post replacements because i know that there was a lot of years at at new west and you know years in between and you know whether it be musical or otherwise you know it might just be highlights as far as your life you know i know that you've you've got a, a, a you know a lot of important things in your life outside of the music world whether it be your family or otherwise um but i just kind of wanted to hear a bit about post replacements what what you're really, really proud to have said that you've been a part of? Uh, well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, uh, I, 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 um, had a strong connection with Athens, uh, from the early days. I was a huge REM fan from the very, you know, first single, the hip tone radio for Europe single. And, um, and so that kind of, uh, drew me to Athens and I ended up working with uh, the REM guys a little bit, um, road managed them uh, for a while in 1983. And, you know, they were just, um, uh, you know, they, they had uh, done well in Minneapolis early on. And, it, you know, I'd, I'd like to think we had something to do with it at the record store. I mean, we sold so many of that first 45 that, you know, when they were touring, you know, they had some kind of a fan base in the southeast, but not many other places in those early days. And when they came to Minneapolis, we might have had you know, close to a hundred people the first time they played and they couldn't believe it. And, and that was, you know, uh, like I said, I, I'd like to think we had something to do with that at the record store. But, um, so that drew me to Athens. Uh, and I, uh, remember Peter Buck telling me about a guy named Jack Logan. Um, and, uh, REM had, uh, you may remember they used to do these, uh, fan club Christmas, uh, singles, um, and, and every year and um they were talking about doing one of jack logan's songs called female jesus and i remember peter playing me that song and also um he had been uh uh championing another local athens band called the dashboard saviors i mentioned a little bit ago um and their manager len hoffman was uh, from columbia missouri columbia south carolina and so Peter played me female Jesus. And then Len Hoffman, you know, just said, Logan's one of the greatest things ever. And you've got to hear more of his stuff. And so I started delving into the Jack Logan thing. And I would honestly say that for me uh, personally, I think, um, you know, I've gotten to work with a lot of great stuff and I'm really proud of the work I've done. But I, I would say to me, as far as something that is maybe not as commonly known or recognized uh, I, for me, Logan stuff is, is, uh, as artistically strong as, um, as what the replacements did. And, uh, I think that he's one of those guys that, you know, hopefully, um, people will continue to discover as, t- as, you know, time goes on. Um, so yeah, 
uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but we did um, we did a, a rather over-the-top first project with Jack Logan in 1994. We did a two-CD set for his first album with 42 songs on it, and it was called Bulk. And um, and I I just think I still think it's uh, it's a great record. We put together a bunch of the basically the four track recordings that he had made with friends um, and they had lots of stuff. I think I sorted through over 600 songs to come up with the 42 for bulk. And um, and uh, so that that to me was uh, a big career highlight um uh, and actually one other interesting thing that i remember was uh um um god i'm trying just having a mental block here on the drummer of the of the uh, drive-by truckers um uh, I and i, I can't yeah, think of his name either but i i know who you're speaking of yeah i will look up his name here as we're talking brad morgan uh brad morgan i remember telling me at one point and he's a very quiet man um, man of few words, and and after I'd you know been working with the da- dashboard saviors, I mean the drive-by truckers for a, a while, I remember him coming up to me one time, um, sort of shyly saying, "Hey, you know what? I never really thanked you, but I wanted to tell you that uh, I was living in Cl- I, I grew up in Columbia, South Carolina, and uh, I got a copy of Bulk by Jack Logan, and that's the reason I moved to Athens." Wow. And and I, so I remember you just thinking, you know, uh, you know how what a sweet thing it was for him to tell me that. So anyway, uh, speaking of that reach that your that your career has had, I mean, it's funny. I feel like that that kind of uh connection has happened with so many people, you know. Uh and and uh, you know, a great testament to that was that Tommy Stinson show that we put together here in town. I mean, there was just so many people here with twin tone records you know what i mean i mean they you know replacements records to get them signed and all and just seeing how how far that has spread you know because i mean you know minneapolis isn't that far from here but it's further than you'd think you know so and and especially when you think about how many decades are between uh you know those or folk years and those early twin tone years and now um and you know there's just so many I mean, it's you know i have you know, I get irritated sometimes with 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 the modern social media sometimes, but then I get on there and I, you know, and something like that that replacements forum I mentioned earlier. You know, just seeing that there's like, wow, like when you can actually count the numbers of just how many people are, rel- you know, daily inspired by by that kind of stuff. You know, um, as as I like to say, I call it the long arm of the replacements. I mean, it's it's amazing. I, I remember the first time I went to Australia. 15 years ago or something and being in some, you know, like Adelaide or something, you know, not a major city and, and having, you know, people come up to me and, you know, rave about the replacements. It was just like, Oh my God, are you kidding me? Really? You know, it's just, it is, um, it, you know, it is, uh, the, the, the impact they had, uh, is, is, uh, is, uh, gratifying to say the least, but, um, well, absolutely. But, you know, yeah. And thank you for but sharing that story about, uh, sorry to talk over you, but, uh, thanks for sharing the story about about those New West years and 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 bringing someone to you know bringing someone from Columbia to Athens as well because it's nice to hear uh, you know some of the about some of the other avenues that you've taken towards uh, you know kind of expanding people's musical horizons you know uh, because uh, obviously like you said the long arm of the replacements but really just the long arm of Twin Tone and Orfolk and and Peter Jesperson you know I mean uh, you know you've, you've 
specifically related to the replacements, you know, obviously you did so much in their career, and, you know, they, they had so much going for them as well just by being, like you said, just really talented guys. But, you know, historically they're kind of known to have shot themselves in the foot, at least here and there, you know. So having having someone like yourself who's who's level-headed and kind and, and can serve as a really good point of contact for the band, like, it's – I'm sh- – like, it, it just could not have been – more needed you know like and uh and 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 really like i i kind of shudder to think what the what the story would have been like without your involvement i mean you know obviously i'm sure someone else would have heard a, a paul westerberg you know tape at some point and thought this was great too but would they have the patience that you and the rest of twin tone had and, you know and this isn't a shot at them you know because i mean you know they were young any any of their uh, you know, you know, wilder and, and, and sort of like unreasonable aspects of their personality. We chalk it up to, to youth and, and, you know, just being naive kids. But, you know, without the, the level-headedness of, of yourself and, and, and the others who supported them, like we, I wonder if, you know, here in, you know, I grew up in Georgetown, South Carolina. It's a small town. Would I have heard about them, you know, if, if there wasn't somebody like yourself to kind of help keep things a little bit more focused and, you know, occasionally play the game, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a that's a good question. I mean, I've, I've wondered myself, but I, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, had, uh, you know, had I not gotten that cassette from Paul, you know, somebody else would have heard him and, you know, but who knows, maybe it would have been after, uh, you know, uh, you know, Tommy and Chris and Bob had fallen by the wayside and Paul was doing something with other musicians or on his own and, and would it have had the same, uh, you know, inherent, um, sort of, you know, quality and value that, uh, you know, those replacements records did. I mean, that's who knows, but, uh, but, you know, I mean, there was, uh, you know, just uh, I just I just wanted to add a couple things just because I don't want it to sound like I'm just saying, you know, the replacements and Jack Logan are the only two things. I mean, there have oh, been absolutely. a lot of a lot of things I just wanted to mention. You know, certainly Vic Chestnut was another one that I uh, fell into when I started hanging around Athens. And um, and in fact, that first uh, trip that I took to Athens um, or not first trip, but when I, um, you know, in the, the early um early eighties when I got, uh, after I'd met the REM guys, um, and I'd been going down to stay with Peter Buck, we'd gotten to be good friends. And, uh, and I remember him saying, you can't leave at, you know, we, were, we did a lot of record shopping. He was a record hound. Like I was like I am. And, uh, so, um, the first record store we went into was probably Wux tree there, you know, downtown Athens. And, uh, and I think he said here, you can't leave Athens without buying this. And he handed me a copy of little by Vic Chestnut, the first Vic Chestnut record. And, and, you know, so Vic is another one for me. I, I, I probably had, uh, literal dreams of being Vic Chestnut's A&R guy like 50 times before I was able to actually pull it off. And so he, he's a very important one too. And, and the fact that, um, you know, we not only got to sign him at new West, uh, but, uh, I, I was lucky enough to, um, I, I was good friends with the, the people who had put out his first records. They had a little label called Texas hotel, uh, based here in LA. And, um, 
And so they were defunct and those records were out of print. And because of my good relationship with those people um, who were very suspicious of record industry people and, and they were very, um, um, uh, I don't know what the word would be, uh, um, protective of Vic Chestnut, uh, they allowed me to purchase the masters of his first four albums and reissue them on, on new West. And, and that's for me, another one of the, you know, great, uh, you know, things that I got to do, um, with Vic, you know, we produced them together and went through his, uh, attic and all of his old, you know, recordings and stuff. And, and really, I think put together an amazing reissue series. So Vic Chestnut would be another thing. Um, and, and more recently, um, replacements related when, uh, their second lead guitar player, Slim Dunlap had a stroke in 2012, and um, we quickly tried to uh, put together a plan to help him make some publishing money by getting other people to record his songs. And so um, with a team of, uh, of good friends, uh, I put together a, a, a series called Songs for Slim. And um, we were able to uh, make enough money to pay for his medical expenses for a couple of years. And, um, you know, the initial launch of this series that we made over $200,000 for his medical expenses. And so, you know, that's a huge thing, you know, just for me, because, um, you know, he, he was really um, when he was part of the, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, part of Kurt Olmsted's band Thumbs Up. Um, that was really the first Minneapolis band that I paid attention to. So, um, you know, Kurt and Bob uh, Dunlap, Kurt Olmsted and Bob Dunlap were very important, you know, in my career. And so to be able to help him meant a lot to me all those years later. He's one of my favorite human beings and, and you know, one of my best pals. And, and of course, it's just so terribly sad that, you know, he's still uh, paralyzed and in a hospital bed and all that. But he's he's still alive here six years later. And and, um, you know, so the songs for Slim Project was it was a huge one. But, you know, there was there was so many, you know, we got to do the the two Slim Dunlap albums, um, his solo albums, which, which I think are amazing gems, records. Man. Those are those yeah. are great records. I, I, I got the, turned on to them a little bit late. But, man, I uh, a friend gave me a vinyl copy of gosh, I can't remember if it was the first or the second one, but. Well, the vinyl is the both albums packaged together. Actually, okay, the only yeah, time those came out on vinyl, yeah. That's right. Um, yeah, and but, then I was like, "This is just this is so great." And uh, I think I saw I might have seen something where Springsteen was championing that one of those records recently, right? Yeah, Springsteen actually had a mixtape that he played before one of his solo shows, uh, where he had the song "Hate This Town." on it and um we actually were I, I was in discussion with springsteen's management during that songs for slim project and you know we were hoping to get bruce to record one of slim songs it just never happened but um you know we were we, we you know they took us seriously it was a consideration i'm very yeah, proud I mean, of that and i mean it, who knows it, it door isn't completely closed right you never know what bruce no. might might pull out even if he did a, a live version i'd be happy to hear it you know yeah um, exactly well, but, um, but anyway, there's been a, a number of things, you know, that I've been lucky to work with, you know, at New West. I mean, getting to, you know, work with Chris Christopherson or Dwight Yoakam. Holy shit. You know, I mean, that was, <laughs> I mean, was like, a, I am, that's a roster, I am not man. worthy. <laughs> I mean, Vic Chestnut alone. I mean, speaking of being inspired by lyrical content, I mean, that lyrical content will break your heart and also like warm it in the same, in the same millisecond, you know, I mean, it's a. Yep. Uh, uh, I'm with you. I I threw on At The Cut, which, you know, is a little bit later. Uh, I think yep. that's the one that's got, like, Silver Mount Zion playing on it. Uh, yep. 
I threw that on for the first time in a while just the other day, and I was like, God, this record is just top to bottom incredible. And, uh, I mean, I, you could say that about every one of them. You know, he, he didn't put out really... You know, I'm sure that there's, you know, if you had to pick up, you know, your absolute favorite, some would, some of it would get trimmed. But like, for the most part, he didn't put out bad songs. I mean, he put out just, yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, that's. I mean, I gosh, being being affiliated with that is absolutely something you should be proud of. Uh, I mean, he was just like a great thinker. You know, he had a, he had a lot to add to the conversation. Yeah. He was a character too, you know. Just one of those guys. I still miss him every day. I, I just, I, I, just being in a room with Vic was so much fun. Every, oh. every, every time. You know? I mean, you could tell he has a great sense of humor. Just, I mean, like I said, I, I, you know, I never met him, but just you feel like you've met him when you've heard his music, you know, because he he puts so much of himself into it. Um, yeah. Um, but uh, you know, you know, you've been extremely gracious with your time, Peter. I I, I kind of had a couple more things I wanted to touch on while I got gotcha. you. Um, one thing, uh, you know, I know that you've you've kind of taken a step back from the music industry a bit in recent years. Um, but are, do you have any projects or or aspirations, musical or otherwise, that you're kind of looking forward to right now? Well, with all due respect, I haven't taken a step back. I mean, I, I worked with New West for 17 years through the spring of uh, 2016, and and uh, that job ended uh, for me when they decided to relocate the headquarters to Nashville, and I, I didn't want to move to Nashville. Okay. Um, so uh, I've been doing freelance since then, and... Um, um, you know, I'm certainly winding down a little bit, I guess, because I'm 66 years old now and um, don't have the same kind of energy that I had, uh, you know, back in the day. But, um, you know, I still have a new favorite group every couple of weeks. And, um, you know, uh, you know, I, I'm still working on lots of different things. I mean, you know, uh, you know, this week, for instance, I'm working on we've got a couple more replacements projects coming up with Rhino, one for this fall and one for next year that we're sketching out at this point. So there's always that kind of stuff to be paying attention to. And, um, you know, I just had to go through my closet and find some old reels of tape and found a bunch of demos that were done in 1986 that we transferred to digital that, um, we're going to be looking at possibly, um, you know, using for, uh, one of these upcoming reissues. Um, um, uh, also I'm working with a couple of local LA bands, uh, one called the everyday visuals, uh, who were originally Boston based and relocated to LA a few years back. And, um, they're, um, I think they're a tremendous group. Uh, another one, uh, called criminal hygiene, uh, which are, I think very much in the replacements vein. Uh, I think, uh, it, it might be something that would appeal to you. Uh, they have one album out called run it again, which is kind of an interesting title, but, uh, not inspired by the replacement song run it, but, um, um, uh, I wondered when I first met them if it might have been. Um, but anyway, I think they're really good. We're in the process of um, uh, looking into the uh, looking at producers for their next record. And um, so just through my um, uh, enthusiasm and affiliations with people, I got Matt Wallace to listen to their stuff. And Matt loves the band. So possible he's going to produce their second album, which would just be so much fun. Um, and you may know his name from, he produced the, uh, don't tell a soul album and, um, and then 14 songs for, for Westerberg, um, and still is in touch with Paul on a 
pretty regular basis. So that would be fun. So that's a couple of local groups. Um, and I also, um, have, uh, been tapped for, a, a big writing project and I can't really go into details right now, but I'm working on uh, a writing project that's going to probably take a couple of years to put together. And it has, uh, it's related to the Minneapolis, St. Paul music scene. So, um, you know, I'm, uh, you know, busy with that. And, um, my wife does music clearance for a living. So I do a lot of work for her when time allows, uh, doing song research and whatnot. She's working on some documentaries right now that, um, uh, that, you know, require, you know, music to be licensed for them. And, uh, so, uh, you know, I try to help her out when I can, she's working on a, a Led Zeppelin documentary. So that's fun. Um, you know, the first authorized documentary with the band members involved. So, so we're having a lot of fun with that. Um, um, so I do, yeah, like I said, I do some, uh, research work for my wife when, uh, when I don't have something on my plate on any given day. That's awesome, man. I'm glad to hear that you're still as active as you are. I guess uh, in my mind, you know, I knew you weren't working with New West anymore. And I kind of thought, well, if there's anybody who, who could, uh, who could absolutely, uh, justify taking a breather, it would be yourself. But, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, it seems true to form that you're still hitting it as hard as you are. Um, and it sounds like you got a lot of, you know, a lot of things coming up that we should all be excited about, man. Thanks for sharing that with us. Um, the last thing I wanted to kind of run by it, just because, like I mentioned, I kind of reached out to get some people's thoughts on, on some talking points for the two of us today. Um, and, you know, we got a ton of response, so I figured, you know, I'd, I'd be kicking myself if I didn't uh, ask you a few of the things that these these people on the Internet have thrown my way. Um, some of them are pretty out there that I, I, you know, the answers could be short if they're completely off base with what they're curious about. But I figured... You know, if they're if they're kind enough to give us so much feedback, we we should uh, throw a few of them your way. Um, well, please do. And and by the way, you know, I mean, I'm you know, I think you're you're a real good interviewer, and and I'm having a a good time talking. So if there's something that occurs to you after we hang up, and you want to, you know, ask a couple more questions, feel free to you know send me a note or give me a call. I mean, it, you know, this is uh, just my pleasure to talk with you. So thank you so much, Peter. Yeah, I'm definitely kind of. We're we're sort of I think the, the the nature of this podcast is getting a lot of people who aren't really uh, historically involved with you know any sort of journalistic pursuit to to chat with people. So it's it's really nice to hear that that as a compliment, man. I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, I'll th- I'll throw a few of these your way. So just take with take them with a grain of salt. Know that they aren't <laughs> they aren't questions that I came up with, but just ones that came our way that I thought might be interesting to throw your way. So. It looks cool. like a, a fella named Michael uh, reached out. He said, did the match management try to get Rod Stewart interested in covering 16 Blue back before Let It Be came out? I recall reading about it in an article, but wasn't sure. You know, I think that there was somebody at Warner Brothers that um, that that said that uh, they were going to try to get the song to uh, to Rod Stewart, but, um, and of course, Westerberg was a massive Rod Stewart fan, um, as was I for that matter. Um, but, uh, you know, by that time, you know, 16 blue was obviously on a twin tone record. And so Warner's didn't have a lot of, uh, investment in trying to get that song covered, but I do believe somebody from the Warner group, uh, from Sire, you know, whether it was, you know, part of Seymour Stein's, you know, crew or, 
or somebody else. Uh, I know they did try to reach out to Rod Stewart, but um, and I believe that they got as far as Rod Stewart hearing the song, but deciding, wow. you know, not not choosing to record it. But I again, um, that's a slightly vague memory. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, yeah. I hadn't even heard about that that uh, that anecdote before now. So that's one positive to to reaching out uh, like I did, just hearing a lot of a lot of the fans' curiosities. Um, it looks yeah. like one one more I'll throw your way. It's pretty simple, but uh, it, it still seems important, especially considering some of the ground you and I have covered already. But a fellow by the name of James Moulton reached out. He said, Dylan, can Peter talk about some of the other bands that the Mats toured with and if that affected their music? Also, what the Minneapolis music scene was like in the early 80s with the Blue Hippos and Rifle Sport in the suburbs, etc. Well, geez, uh as far as bands that the the mass toured with, I mean, you know, there was, um, God, uh, you know, um, uh, certainly the Del Fuegos were uh, one that we hooked up with early on. Uh, in fact, they were on the bill with the replacements at the first uh, New York gig there at Folk City. Um, and so the Del Fuegos, I think, were... Uh, a band that had an impact. Um, um, I want to say there's another Boston band um, that had a funny name, and um, but I'm not. It's not popping into my head. Um, um, God, and and who else did they tour with? It would have been fun. Um, touring partners well certainly young fresh fellows in the latter days um they were you know big fans of we did a lot of dates with the pontiac brothers which was ward dotson uh who was in the gun club uh the band that he had after the gun club that was one that was a real good uh you know kind of touring um you know compatible touring band for us um um, the Neats, we did a couple of dates with, uh, a Boston band that were a little bit more, I don't know, I'd say dreamy and serious, maybe a little bit more in the REM vein. Um, so I might've been a bigger fan than the actual replacements guys were, but I know we did some dates with them. Um, and they were, uh, I think were really a great band of that era of the early to mid eighties. Um, as far as, uh, you know, the other Minneapolis bands, I mean, you know, the, uh, you know, the, who's, as I said, Husker Du were really supportive of the replacements and, um, you know, for instance, uh, invited us to Chicago for the first time in the January of 82. But prior to that, uh, a, a band that did so much for the replacements that I don't think gets enough credit is, is the suburbs who were, um, you know, I think Tommy uh, got to be friends with both uh, Chan, the piano player, singer, and Hugo, the drummer, uh, in particular. And so that kind of drew him into that circle. But um, uh, they were so generous to us. And, uh, and in fact, as I mentioned earlier, the first out-of-town gig we did in December of 1980 was opening for the suburbs in a roller skating rink in Duluth, uh, Minnesota. Um, but we did lots of... Uh, you know, dates opening for the suburbs around Minneapolis, uh, playing, you know, rooms that, that that were too big for the replacements to headline in, but were, 
um, you know, places where the suburbs had enough of a draw that the replacements could open for them. So that was great. Um, and, uh, um, yeah, so that, I think that covers a bit of what that, uh, gentleman asked. Absolutely, man. Well, yeah. well, well, Peter, thank you so much for your time, man. Uh, I think, you know, um, to be completely, uh, transparent here, me and Eddie have had, you know, it's a beautiful day here in Columbia. We've been drinking casually, uh, a handful of beers here and, uh, uh, <laughs> nature is calling quite uh desperately at the moment <laughs> uh, all right uh, but uh it's been great talking to you man thanks so Likewise. much for everything and uh, i'll reach out to you soon i'd love to get a uh, uh an address or something that i can send a, a copy of this dear blanca record to you uh, that i shared with you before we we got the test pressings back and i'd love to get a, a hard copy in your hands that'd be great i'd be happy to give you an address and um and uh let me know when um you uh, publish this uh podcast and and um like I said, if you have any other questions, you know, feel free to give me a shout. Absolutely, man. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon, Peter. Thank you, man. Take right. care, Dylan. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, what? This has been a Comfort Monk podcast.